0: Welcome to the Banking Weekly podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's money editor, standing in for Patrick Jenkins this week. Joining me in the studio today are Laura Noonan, investment banking correspondent, Emma Dunkley, the FT's retail banking correspondent, and joining us from the US, Alistair Gray, our US banking correspondent. This week, We'll be discussing the growth prospects for investment banks. Deutsche Bank has been knocked off the number three spot and Credit Suisse is looking to China for its expansion plans at a time when many other investment banks are cutting back on their office space in the UK. We'll also be looking at the continual drip-drip of PPI reclaims in the UK and Alistair Gray will be asking his guest, the author Larry Jacobs of Minnesota University, to tell us more about a book he's co-authored called Fed Power, How Finance Wins. Firstly, two of Europe's biggest banks, Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse, have been in the news again this week. With Deutsche Bank, the big thing has been that they have fallen out of the world's top three investment banks for the first time since the financial
2: crisis. Laura, how big a surprise is this really? It's a kind of an odd one because it has generated a lot of interest. So this is the first time since 2006 when Deutsche Bank hasn't been one of the top three global investment banks. And that's when you take into account the amount of revenue the bank makes from sales and trading and from investment banking. Deutsche is now joined fifth. I mean, the overall backdrop to this is that, as we all know, Deutsche Bank has been on a plan to shrink its investment bank. And that is something which the bank shareholders have very much called for and something which people have overall welcomed. So against that backdrop, the idea that if you do shrink your investment bank, you are no longer one of the top three investment banks shouldn't be that radical. However, people do seem to be surprised to see Deutsche coming down this far in the rankings.
0: Well, certainly the reaction to your story on FC.com when it was published was instant. It really caught the imagination of some of our commentators online.
2: Yeah, there has been a lot of reaction to it, I guess, because Deutsche Bank was the last large European investment bank. So when you think about the big global investment banking powerhouses, Deutsche was really the last holdout of the Europeans. Credit Suisse was never really as big as Deutsche. In terms of the UK banks, we've seen Barclays or have basically abandoned being a global banking superpower long ago. So Deutsche was really the last holdout of the Europeans that had these kind of big global ambitions. Now, the bank isn't conceding that it's going to stay below the top three. The bank, we understand, believes that even though it's going to be putting less assets into its investment bank, that it can ultimately get back into the top three as it is able to build strengths in different areas. The other thing to stress is there isn't a whole lot dividing the top three and the top five. So it is conceivable that Deutsche Bank may actually jump back up. That's a little bit counterintuitive, though, because in the last few years, the story really has been about the big US banks doing well and the European banks falling. So against that backdrop, Deutsche will have an uphill battle ahead of it if it does want to actually try to regain some of that ground over the coming years.
0: Absolutely. And I perhaps should have said earlier that if anyone listening and wondering who's number one and two, JP Morgan has retained its title at the top of the lead table, followed by Goldman Sachs, which has consolidated its hold on second place. And Deutsche is now behind Citigroup and Bank of America, which both shared the number three spot with the German bank last year. Well, let's move on to Credit Suisse, another big investment bank in the news this week. They are, of course, also shrinking their investment banking
2: functions, but they're expanding elsewhere, notably China. Tell us more about this. Yeah, so Credit Suisse is having its annual APAC conference today, Tuesday. And their chief executive, Tijen Time, has been talking to journalists in Hong Kong earlier this morning. He's been making comments about how Credit Suisse is underweight in the China area and how they would like to be onshore in China. And that's an area that they would like to invest in. Now, China has been seen as a growth economy in recent years but in the more recent, recent past, China hasn't really been doing so well. So, I mean, most people talking about China are concerned about the slowdown rather than talking about the opportunities. Tijan was saying how he doesn't see what the big deal is. OK, China's growth isn't as high as it was in earlier years. So it had annual growth rates of 10%. Now it's down to close to six. But he points out that even a growth rate of 6% Mm -hmm. is far higher than the growth rates in the European context or in the US context where really if you got growth rate of 2 to 3% in some European economies, you'd be doing great. So his call is really to look at the Chinese growth in context, not of the recent Chinese growth, but in context of the overall global economic growth. And he says that based on that, he thinks 6 to 6.5% is still a very strong growth rate. And based on that, China is an area where they should be investing.
0: And certainly his long experience of running Prudential and its substantial Asian business interests suggests that he knows what he's talking about. Now, Credit Suisse, I'm going to bring in Emma Dunkley here, our retail banking correspondent. They've been in the news in the UK this week for a different reason. You have done a great story for the FT with our property correspondent, Judith Evans, another fine female of the FT, saying that they are among a number of banks who are subletting London office space after staff cuts, trying to find somebody else to pay the rent for them.
3: Indeed, there seems to be a growing number of banks that have property in the capital and particularly in Canary Wharf that are subletting or at least looking to sublet thousands of square feet in this area. And this really comes as part of a broader drive to cut costs and it follows on for a number of huge job losses. So a number of banks, Credit Suisse included, are actually relocating or seeking to relocate a number of jobs into less expensive areas. Recent research from the British Bankers Association also shows that more banks are actually relocating or setting up jobs in different regions around the UK as a way to help push costs down. Birmingham,
0: I believe, has been popular.
3: Birmingham is certainly key especially as HSBC has developed plans to set up its retail bank there to coincide with ring fencing regulation, which comes into force in 2019, which requires banks to separate their retail operations from riskier investment banking activities.
0: And can you give us any idea of the amount of
3: office space that the banks have got on the market down in Canary Wharf? How many empty buildings are we looking at? Well, we're talking thousands of square feet. So in the case of Credit Suisse, they sublet 300,000 square feet to Thomson Reuters, having previously sublet the area to Bank of America I believe we also have Barclays who is reportedly looking to sublet a similar amount 300,000 square feet to a division of the UK government so it's quite a significant amount of space that's being sublet and this also comes at a time when banks are closing down branches and others are looking to sell off offices and other real estate so Jez Staley chief executive of Barclays recently said in its annual results in which they reported a net loss of 2015 that they could make significant savings from selling off real estate this year.
0: Yes, well, certainly the branch closure programmes are something that we continue to follow with interest on my publication, FT Money, which leads me neatly on to the final story I'm going to ask you about, Emma, PPI. We're constantly getting those horrible little texts and reminders that we may have taken out this kind of insurance and we can claim back. It's annoyance for us. It's a bigger annoyance for the banks and their shareholders, as you have written this week.
3: Certainly. Well, while it's annoying for consumers to receive many a call from claims management firms, they're equally flagging up this issue and suggest that it's far from over. In fact, banks have now set aside more than £30 billion. I think the exact figure is £32 billion, which really suggests that PPI mis-selling is the biggest consumer mis-selling debacle over the past few decades in the financial sector. So banks in their recent set of results last month suggested that their recent provisions for PPI mis-selling could be their final bulk provision. So Lloyds Bank, for example, which were among the biggest in mis-selling PPI as the largest lender in the UK, set aside another £2.1 in the final quarter of last year. However, recent research that we've managed to obtain suggests that half the amount that banks have actually paid out in compensation is in fact interest rather than PPI premiums itself – this suggests that there is a long way to go and that in fact there's some 22 billion pounds of ppi premiums that need to be repaid to consumers just to put that in the context
0: um you know from from the consumer position in which i sit if I'm looking at a PPI policy which I've paid, say, £1,000 for over the years and I took out seven years ago, the way that the compensation will be awarded if it's found to have been missold is that I'll get compound interest typically of around 6 or 7% a year on that £1,000. And the way that compound interest works, it can normally dramatically increase the value of the payouts that consumers are receiving. And this is exactly what the report you've written about this week has found out.
3: Exactly. So this suggests that while those consumers that have successfully claimed have received their original amount invested in PPI plus interest, it does suggest that for the banks, actually the amount they've paid out doesn't reflect PPI premiums alone. A significant proportion of this is in fact interest. So this isn't just a case of claims management firms puffing up their own story here and suggesting there's a long way to go. Banks have actually conceded behind the scenes that a significant amount of the compensation is in fact interest.
0: Well, more pain and no doubt more text messages still to come. The final segment of today's show is Alistair Gray, our US banking correspondent, who has been in New York interviewing Larry Jacobs of Minnesota University on a book he co-wrote called Fed Power, How Finance Wins. Alistair began by asking about the current Wall Street view that the Fed's ultra-low interest rate policy was hurting the banks. Was that wrong?
1: While there's great frustration in the banking community with the Federal Reserve's Interest policies today. The longer-term perspective actually suggests that banks have done quite well by the Fed. You've had the Fed being quite responsive to Wall Street when it's needed to be. 2008 and 9 is a kind of a signal moment when there was obviously an earthquake, and the Fed rushed forward. Unlike central banks in other countries, the Federal Reserve was focused almost exclusively on helping. Wall Street and other huge firms. There was little help, if any, for the homeowners who were suffering from foreclosure procedures and struggling businesses on Main Street. You look at England, there were a set of conditions on the help provided to financial institutions there to help homeowners and businesses not done in the United States. This book is really about looking backwards and looking forwards. And I think the key question is. When the next financial crisis hits, and it will, will there be a central bank in America that can respond as it did in 2008 and nine? And our argument is decidedly no. There is virtually no chance that a future Congress would approve a TARP-like bailout and the kind of autonomy that the Federal Reserve exercised in 2008 and nine will not be possible in the future. That is a very dire predicament for America and for financial markets.
4: And what is the problem as you see it with the US system in particular? Which countries do have an ideal central banking system as it were?
1: Well, you know, I don't think there's any one country that you would say the US should adopt this. But if you look at Canada, Canada and the US kind of were in roller coasters before the 1980s in terms of their financial markets. Canada started to enact a series of reforms that scaled back the regulatory responsibilities of its central bank, the Bank of Canada, and it established an effective, coordinated supervisor of regulation. And it's been a remarkable record. The IMF and other organizations that watch central banks continually rank the Canadian system as the most effective. Whereas in the United States, we continually slip into these crises and we will again, because we have not established a competent administrative structure to police speculative risk-taking. In addition, when it's time for a kind of last resort, jumping in and putting out the fire, the Federal Reserve has now had its heads tied by Dodd-Frank reforms because of the loss of confidence in Congress and in other parts of America about the Fed's stewardship for the country as opposed to by big finance.
4: So you think the the banks here should be really quite happy with the way they have things?
1: No, I think the banks have legitimate concerns, certainly about the short term. But I think if you step back and you say, "Where are banks today, where, compared to where they were in 2008?" I think everyone would agree that that the Federal Reserve stepped in and kind of saved the day for big banks. The problem and they is, had to right? They absolutely had to. There's no dispute about that. But I think when you step back and you say, "Okay, well, how did that work out?" Well. The recession dragged on for many more years, and the Fed made a mistake in not focusing on the huge household debt. That was a mistake. Secondly, the Fed clearly lost the trust of many people in Congress such that a future bailout will be virtually impossible. When you look at Dodd-Frank, the main theme in Dodd-Frank in terms of its organization is to divide the power that the Fed used to have. And it's now handcuffed the Fed from using some of the powers and authorities that it deployed with enormous impact in 2008 and nine, and setting up these new facilities for AIG and other parts of the financial system. That's not going to happen again. And it's time to wake up.
4: And so financial regulation has uh, become a hot topic in the uh, presidential campaign trail, Bernie Sanders in particular, proposing to break up the banks. What specifically would you like to see done on bank regulation?
1: I actually think the idea of too big to fail is a bit of a cop-out because essentially there's a fatalism there. The fatalism is to say, we're going to head into another crisis and let's limit how much taxpayers are going to be exposed. Our approach in fed power is to say, how is it that we can prevent the next financial crisis? And the path there is three steps. One it's time to start to diminish the Federal Reserve's role in regulation. Its responsibility should be focused on monetary policy. And here, I think you've got some real concerns in the banking community about the current Fed monetary policy in terms of interest rates. Two, that public authority ought to follow where public monies and loans and guarantees and securities are being put up. And for the most part, a lot of the power in the Federal Reserve is exercised by private banks. One proposal in Congress with bipartisan support is to make the president of the New York Fed, nominated by the president, put up for Senate uh, confirmation. Third, we have dissipated the administrative policing power of the U.S. regulatory agencies such that it is a complete mess.
4: Just on the subject of um, people at the top, there's been some criticism that top central banking jobs have gone to alumni of Goldman Sachs in particular. I think it's even dubbed the Federal Reserve of Goldman Sachs. <laughs> but don't we want to have policymakers who properly understand institutions, and who better to do so than former bankers?
1: Yeah, certainly, and I think the Federal Reserve has no shortage of outstanding experts. The concern with appointing, you know, Goldman Sachs partners and others to a uh, responsibility uh, in the Federal Reserve and other parts of the system is that there's a kind of revolving door in which they simply switch hats, but they're still on the same team. You know, to be honest, we don't really make that our argument in Fed power. We see the Fed is quite beholden and quite attuned to finance, but it's not because of the revolving door as much as from the fact that the Fed relies on finance. Its revenue does not come from Congress, it is collected through the buying and selling of securities on the market. So there is a, a confluence of interest there. It's not the changing of people as much.
4: Uh, professor, thanks very much indeed for joining us.
1: Good to be with you.
0: That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Laura Noonan, Emma Dunkley, Alistair Gray and his guest Larry Jacobs. And thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keene. Until next week, goodbye.